I'd like for you now to turn your attention to some unsung heroes in our church. The columns. They're big, but we kind of forget to see them, right? Unless you happen to be stuck behind one of them, you really don't pay much attention. What would happen without the columns? They're kind of important, right? Now, we know that we can see these columns, but often the structures and the supports that hold up the buildings that we're in are invisible. So when I lived in Boston, I went to Trinity Copley Square in the Back Bay. Has anybody been to Trinity Copley Square? Anyone? Okay, a couple of you. Look it up, because this is a ginormous church, cathedral-sized church, a big square, and it has a 19-million-ton tower that is the central part over the place where everybody sits. 19 million tons, just the tower. There's another fact about Trinity Copley Square. It's built on swampland. Now, you might be thinking, how, how would you do that? There's also a sky rise that's like 50 stories tall right next to it. So the Back Bay, back in the time that our church was being built, uh, Back Bay, Boston, was a swampland. It was basically tidal flats that they had filled in. And it was a mess. It was a muddy mess. But they figured out how to build in that area, sometimes unsuccessfully. But in this case, the same time, almost the same time they were building this church, there were builders in Boston driving 4,500 logs, trees, big trees, into that muddy, swampy mess until they hit bedrock. And those 4,500 logs support the four main columns that hold up Trinity Copley Square. Those columns are submerged in water 100% and have been for over 125 years. Think about that. Now, we think, wait, don't they rot? Well, actually, wood does not rot if they are forever submerged in water. The only time it would start to rot is if, for some reason, the water table lowered and they were exposed to air. Then the process of rot would start. When they went back in 2003 and actually did a full study of this structure, because they were going to do a massive remodel of the basement, they went down and looked at these logs, and they found that the vast majority of them were perfectly fine, no rot whatsoever. And they were able to repair the ones that had started. They also found that the builder had thought ahead at the possibility of rot. And he overbuilt the foundations so much that 50% of each log could disappear and it would still hold up 19 million tons. Now, that's pretty phenomenal in a world without 
digital design, software, and a lot of the modern conveniences we think we have now, they were able to do that then. We take for granted that the buildings we walk into are going to stay standing. And we also know that sometimes they don't, as uh, sadly Davenport experienced just last month when a building collapsed and death and destruction follow. Shifting from this world to the world of our lives What are the columns that hold up your life? Sometimes we build structures and columns, beliefs and routines and habits to hold things up, jobs, relationships, our life with God, and sometimes they're good and strong and that's wonderful, and sometimes they're not, and they crumble. What are the columns that support your life? Our gospel and our epistle today point at two metaphorical ways that Jesus dealt with structures that were not sound and caused people to be crushed under the weight when the roof caved in. So just before our gospel reading that we heard, John the Baptist sent his disciples, his disciples, to Jesus, and they were to ask him a question. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Isn't that kind of a human question to ask? Wait, aren't you supposed to be the Messiah, Jesus? When are you going to get to it? Show me the proof. And Jesus responds to them and says, nothing, actually. (laughs) He points to the things that he's doing, the miracles of his ministry, the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. And he also acknowledged that there were people, namely the leaders of his time, that would not listen to the good news, no matter how it was preached. And that's that first part of our reading today that might seem a bit obscure. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We, We wailed, and you did not mourn. Jesus came celebrating and feasting, and they didn't listen to him. John the Baptist came fasting and lamenting, and they didn't listen to him. The religious structures of the day benefited from the people not hearing the good news. They didn't shelter the people. And so the people became crushed under the weight of human-made religious laws. What columns there were were crumbling And all the weight fell mainly on the poor of that time period. It was so much easier to follow the laws that were being taught about how to be in relationship with God if you had money and power and status. 
Now, traditionally, there are 613 commandments of God that was considered the law in the Old Testament, give or take a few, but 613 is the way they're usually counted. But around these 613, they added so many more laws and rules that people had to follow. It was intended to prevent someone from breaking one of the actual laws. So here's how it worked. It was be as if somebody put a stop sign out here in the middle of the block before you came to the intersection with the traffic light. So you'd have to stop on the off chance that you might run the red light at the traffic light. And that's what started to happen. So many of these laws that made you back up even before you came close to breaking one of God's laws. Now, we might think in Dubuque, there's a few places we might want one of those signs. I know uh, our intersection up by the parish house sees a lot of accidents and a lot of people running that red light. I know when I was traveling back from Texas, there were places exactly like this where they would make you slow down from 75 miles an hour to a snail's pace because there was going to be a major intersection crossing the highway. They didn't want you to run that light, so they made a law so you had to slow down. But in Jesus' time, the people who bore the brunt of these laws and rules were already despairing of being able to follow the 613 commandments, and this just added even more weight. And they despaired whether God even loved them, especially those that were deemed outcast, called sinners or lawbreakers. The leaders who made these rules thought the rules were more important than caring for the people and pointing them to God. So now we come to those beautiful lines of Scripture that Jesus says, and this is why he says them. He's speaking to those who are despairing. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And when Jesus talks about rest, he's talking about God's rest, Sabbath rest, the rest from labor, earning, either spiritual or monetary. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy. Easy doesn't cut the word that's actually in Greek. The word in Greek is krestos, which is often defined as kind. My yoke is kind, and my burden is light. Now, shifting to the epistle, Paul, in Romans talks about another burden. In addition to the unsympathetic external religious structures that were crushing the people, there was also an internal burden, a real internal burden that was crushing people. 
and that was sin. And in this passage, the word that is used for sin is hamartia. There are many words used in scriptures to mean sin, but this one is to miss the mark. Imagine you're uh, shooting an arrow and you miss the target. That's what hamartia is. It also has a connotation of prone to wander, to wander away from the path. And we sang it in Come Thou Fount. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. That is harmatia. Now, Paul, he is a Pharisee, and he has tried to follow God's law perfectly. All 613 commandments with all the additions. That's what Pharisees did. They were very invested in being able to follow God's, perfect, God's law perfectly. And to some degree... If we were to believe his boasts, he succeeded. But he knew it wasn't enough. He knew it wasn't enough. He knew that there was something in him that acted contrary to even what he desired. And it was rotting the columns of his life. And so in this passage, we are seeing his anguish, his wrestling knowing what is right, and simply not being able to do it. He was crushed by the weight of his own powerlessness to perfectly follow God's commands. Now, something to pay attention to that Paul says in this passage, the law is not the bad guy. God's law is not the bad guy. It was intended to bring awareness of sin, that there is right and there is wrong. And Jesus didn't advocate breaking God's law. But he did break the human additions to it, frequently. And he also treated people who had broken God's law with welcome and forgiveness and love every single time. He ate with the tax collectors and sinners, as our gospel passage says. And when asked for the greatest commandment of all of those 613, he summarized the entire law with two. I bet you can tell me what they are. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. The whole point of God's love, law was not to follow rules, but to grow in love. Now, it sounds so simple, and Jesus, in his preaching, helped peel away all those external traditions and additions that burdened those around him. But something more was necessary. Even simplified, as Paul argues, we still can't keep the law. He would know. When Jesus found him, he had approved the stoning murder of Stephen, one of the disciples, and the violent persecution of Christians. Paul had broken God's law and wandered far from the God he said he followed perfectly. 
And into that, Jesus offered forgiveness and grace. So, what does this mean for us? Look at the cover of your bulletin. Sometimes art is worth a thousand words and not an extra long sermon. (laughs) On the cover of your bulletin is a painting by Maria Lang, and I think it captures what these scriptures are pointing at. Jesus brings each one of us into the shelter of his arms. He becomes our columns. He holds up the world for us. And that person that is with Jesus in the painting, you see is under the yoke that is on Jesus' shoulders. But in truth, Jesus is the one that's bearing the weight. And then if you look even closer, that yoke you will see is the cross. God's law does say lawbreakers must be punished. There is good and there is evil, and evil cannot exist in God's economy. No one can keep the law perfectly to love God and love others all the time. But there is one who can and did, and that is Jesus. He came and kept the law perfectly, and then also bore the weight of the law's punishment on our behalf. When we take the yoke of Jesus upon us, we become free and unburdened. It's kind of the opposite. Instead of taking more weight, we actually have the weight of sin released from us, and this is the gift of grace. And so with this new spiritual freedom that we have received, we are now empowered to keep this law, love God and love others, not by our own strength and effort, but God's own power. It's like God's love, God's own love coming through us, and it it opens the conduits and lets that love flow out into the world for others. So if you feel crushed this morning by anything in life, and you long for this kind yoke and this light burden, this message is for you. And if you find you're missing the mark, as we all do, when it comes to loving God or loving others, this message is is for you. And it's for me. Believe me, this last week, I've been wrestling with these passages in my own spiritual life. And Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. It can be as easy as saying, Jesus, be my shelter, be my strength. Jesus, be my shelter, be my strength, be the columns of my life. Amen.